Welcome back to Cancer Perspective. Thank you for joining us. Today we have our very first guest in the studio. Today we have Gina Rich, a registered dietitian that specializes in oncology patients. She's been a fantastic resource for many of the patients that I know and have gotten to know her really well over the past seven years. Gina is the award recipient for the 2023 Emerging Dietetic Leader of the Year Award from the Illinois Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We'll also be joined by our lovely dogs. So if you hear noises from them, it's because Gina and I do a lot with our dogs. Thank you for joining us, Gina. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really excited to be here. I love working with you and I love what I do. Um, I love nutrition and helping our patients. So I'm happy to be here and be a resource. So today I think we're going to talk about poop. My favorite topic ever. (laughs) So this is going to be great. We are celebrating colorectal month in March. Let's bring the poop along with us in the colorectal month. Overall, people who have been following along with us will know that we've talked about the importance of good nutrition when we're talking about health of the gut for overall wellness. Tell us a little bit about what we should be doing to help our gut. That's a great question. I get asked that quite often. Gut health is kind of a hot topic right now. So celebrating this month with colorectal awareness to promote prevention from colorectal cancer, it's extremely important that we eat a diet that's going to be rich in fiber. The more higher fiber diets, we actually see a decrease in colorectal cancers. And on average, most American adults are not getting nearly enough dietary fiber. So things like whole grains, obviously your brown rice, rather white rice, whole grain breads instead of your white breads, those things are going to be full and rich of certain fibers that are called insoluble fibers. They're the roughage. So all those yummy, crunchy fruits and veggies that rough stuff that we're eating that is very healthy, that's really good in helping our gut, maintaining good gut health, and help with prevention of colorectal cancers. On the flip end, with having actual colorectal cancer, our diet has to be completely adjusted. Most of my patients will say, okay, I'm being treated for colon cancer, so I really need to increase, you know, all this spinach and lettuce and broccoli and cauliflower, thinking that they're doing their body justice. However, it's not. When you come to cancer nutrition, everything is almost backwards of what a preventative lifestyle measure should be. Typically, we put patients on what's called a low-fiber diet, and many of my patients get really freaked out because they think, well, if you're taking away all my fiber... How could that be healthy for my gut? How is that helping me right now? But ultimately, a low-fiber diet doesn't mean that you're losing fiber. You're choosing a different fiber. And that fiber is going to help you and prevent a lot of aggravating issues that can come with all the rough fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So a patient has colorectal cancer and their gut is under attack from cancer. Many patients, when they have cancer, automatically, oh my goodness, I need to be having this in my diet, that in my diet. But you have to think about you're not under the prevention circle anymore. You are now under the fighting circle. You have to calm things down on the inside. You're battling the insult of potential surgery, the drugs for fighting cancer, radiation potentially. So it does change. You said it exactly. You have to fight and your gut is under attack. So how I explain it to my patients is with cancer, the disease in your body 
it's creating all this inflammation. You can't really tell it's there. Sometimes you can with all your cramping and bloating and, you know, belly discomfort. But we have this whole inflammatory process. Everything is reddened and irritated. So to feed your body something that is rough and hard to break down, your body can't do it. It needs to put its energy elsewhere. We want to give it foods that are easy to digest, easy to absorb the nutrition, instead of throwing a big, crunchy, fresh salad in, your body's going to basically reject it. That can result in a lot of gut discomfort or severe diarrhea or even blockages. So right now you need to respect your body and help it fight the cancer by feeding it something that it can process and break down with it being in a weakened state. So when somebody is fighting the inflammation and they are on a roll of trying to get nutrition in and they're just not maintaining weight. We've talked in previous episodes about trying to maintain weight while you're on treatment is a good goal. Maybe some people say, well, you know, I was overweight. I needed to lose some weight. Well, not during cancer treatment. We want to make sure that you're getting your nutrition. What kind of recommendations do you have for someone with colorectal cancer to maintain their nutrition when they're trying not to have massive diarrhea? One thing a lot of my patients have is questions regarding they get put on a low-fiber diet or they also get told that they need to follow a BRAT diet. So then I get questions like, oh my gosh, I can only have four things, bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast. Well, how am I supposed to survive off this? Basically, the BRAT diet, it's not incorrect, but it's not giving you a full response. So let's break down what the BRAT diet is essentially. It's basically what we call low fiber, meaning a certain soluble fiber. So those are fibers that are more of oats instead of brown rice. Those are going to be fibers that help facilitate water and bulk up the stool. Then there's also pectin. And if you are unfamiliar with what pectin is, basically think about how they make jelly or jam and it gets gelatinized. That's what pectin is. It helps to kind of form and create a happy consistency. It doesn't give all this rough roughage that you're getting from whole grains and fresh this and fresh that. The brat diet is bananas, which contain pectin, applesauce, which is the low-fiber version instead of a fresh apple with the skin and all that insoluble fiber. It's the apple that's already chopped up and broken down. And then you're getting the rice, which is going to be white rice instead of brown rice, and toast, white toast instead of brown toast. So that BRAT acronym is essentially telling you to avoid all the whole grains and choose your fruits and vegetables to be cooked or already kind of processed, taking away all that effort into your body digesting it. It doesn't mean you can only have those four things. It is kind of showing you what you are eating needs to be softer, already kind of chopped up, cooked. All those things in the food need to be pre-broken down so it's less work for your belly to break it down. Excellent. Thank you. Gina, all my patients know that I am a big fan of probiotics. I like probiotics for gut health for everyone, particularly people who eat a lot of processed foods. What are your thoughts about probiotics and cancer patients? That's a great question, and I also get asked that a lot. Probiotics, if you're not familiar with them, are basically what can be found in food. It's bacteria. So in your belly, you actually have colonies of bacteria growing, which people find kind of odd, but it actually helps keep your gut functioning properly. Kind of correlates when they think about your bacteria in your belly is the microbiome, if you've heard that big word thrown out there. That's looking at all the different bacteria in your belly, and each bacteria has a certain job, 
and it's good bacteria. When you get an antibiotic, that's getting rid of your bad bacteria, but you actually need to have good bacteria to function normally. And everybody really could benefit from probiotics. I personally myself take them. They can be found naturally in some food options in your fridge, like yogurt has some lactobacillus in it. However, when it comes down to probiotics, a lot of us, especially eating processed foods, don't have a lot of good bacteria in our gut. So that's why it's so common nowadays for people to complain of bloating, discomfort. You hear a lot about IBS this, IBS that. There's a lot of gut issues out there, and it's because we are lacking on the variety of the bacteria in our gut. When it comes down to it, unless we do invasive poop tests, we really don't know what you're lacking in your gut. I cannot assess you. A doctor can't really assess you and tell, oh, well, you need these three strains of bacteria to replenish and have a healthy belly. Really, the goal with probiotics is to get a wide variety and replete what's potentially missing. The big marketing thing in America right now is to sell probiotics and on the bottle, you're going to see, oh, this has 50 billion of this colony. And that sounds like a lot. However, it only has two strains of bacteria in it. Well, that's not going to do anything if you need a lot of other strains or you already have those two strains and it's not giving you anything else. The more the merrier. Think about it's like taking a stab in the dark of what's your gut missing? Let's give you the best option and best variety to replenish and help rebuild your gut health. My rule of thumb for my patients Anything eight strains and more is going to be a pretty solid probiotic. I myself take one that has about 12 strains. You can get some that have a lot more strains, but that's the key when you're looking on your bottles of probiotics is the number of strains. It doesn't matter the million, kajillion, whatever colonies. It's the strains. The more variety, the better. And yes, patients can safely take it during and after treatment. It is going to benefit you and your caregivers can take it along with you. Everyone should be attempting to improve their gut health as the gut really controls a lot of our body. Our immune system, most of it lies in our gut. So if we are neglecting giving it all that good healthy fighting bacteria, we're going to have a lot of illness. Well said. So besides probiotics, do you recommend anything for somebody who's not yet struggling with any diarrhea or constipation that's going through colorectal treatment? What else should they put in their diet? A lot of times before diagnosis or right at the beginning of diagnosis, and even during treatment, you could have diarrhea. And diarrhea, so yes, you want to follow that quote-unquote brat diet, which is your soluble fiber and pectin food choices, but you also want to maintain proper hydration. And every time you have a loosened bowel movement, so a watery type stool, you actually need to replenish about two to two and a half cups of fluid that is not just plain water. It has to have some electrolytes in it. When you hear electrolytes, people automatically think Gatorade, which is pretty decent, right? Some electrolyte sports beverages and things like that. But actually, some other drinks can be more powerful. But anything with electrolytes, you can make it naturally yourself. But two and a half cups for every loosened stool, and that'll prevent a lot of dehydration issues. Because that's the biggest thing with diarrhea is you get dehydrated, then you feel worse, and then you don't want to eat, and then it becomes a vicious cycle, and you're losing weight rapidly, which can be very dangerous. Dehydration is one of the main causes that people end up in the hospital during treatment. Absolutely. It's the biggest inpatient thing I see with them is, why are they there? Dehydration. Can it be preventable? Yes, we can manage it. You have to work at it and be very mindful of it, but it can prevent a lot of unnecessary having to go to the ER or hospitals or things like that. 
Create a plan with your doctor and dietitian of how to manage your hydration throughout this process. A lot of treatments require more hydration than normal. What's this liquid IV that is found in your neighborhood grocery store? Probably one of the personally best tasting electrolyte ones I've tried out on the market. So liquid IV, first off, super cute name, I would say. It's basically like Gatorade and Pedialyte on steroids in a little crystal light packet. It is a wonderful hydration packet. You can find it anywhere now. I saw it in gas stations. I saw it in supermarkets. It's a pretty popular one, maybe popping up on your Facebook feed or something. But it's basically a very potent form of electrolytes. It can have sometimes three or four times more electrolytes than your standard sports drinks that you're getting on the market. My patients and our patients, Sarah, that come to us and say, I can only drink two glasses a day. Well, you want those two glasses to be the most potent two glasses. I've heard people say that they do not like the taste of something like Gatorade. I then suggest Pedialyte possibly. Is that something that you say to your patients as well? Yeah, so all would be any option, Gatorade, Pedialyte, Powerade, all those drinks have electrolytes, but each will have a different amount. When it comes down to it and you're just not able to get much in and we need to get some electrolytes in you, whatever your taste preference is, is what you should choose. Don't get overwhelmed by the content so much if you're unable to drink it because of the taste in your preference. So Pedialyte's another awesome option. A lot of people think it's for your babies when your babies get sick, but it actually is very beneficial for adults. They even have like advanced formulary versions. And popsicles. Yes, exactly. The popsicles. You're exactly right, Sarah. Popsicles, they make Pedia Pops. You'll usually find those not in the frozen section. You're going to find them right next to your Pedialyte in the infant section or even down your soda sports drink aisle in the grocery store. They're going to be shelf stable. So you can take them out, throw them in the freezer. And a lot of times that's very refreshing. It's a different way to get the electrolytes in. You can even take a Gatorade or Pedialyte if it's too sweet or salty, dilute it with water, right? We're still adding electrolytes to our plain old water. I tell my patients if you're dehydrated, whatever water you're able to get in in a 24-hour period, say that's six glasses of water, 50% of that, so half of that, three glasses, should have electrolytes in it. So you don't always want plain water. You want those electrolytes. Adding or diluting a sports drink is a great way to get some of that in. You can also take those and mix it with your favorite juice. Some do like fruit punch or apple juice. Some add also like a 7-Up or ginger ale and make a little nice mocktail spritzer that can be settling on the stomach as well by having that 7-Up or ginger ale with it. It's very refreshing. You can also take it and make instant jello with it, and that masks the taste a lot too. We have a lot of diabetic patients, and they worry about their sugar content. Yes, that is correct. So you're going to notice on those sports drinks and electrolyte-containing beverages, sugar can be the first ingredient in there. So a lot of those diabetic patients think it's not right for them. Well, sugar, the other word for it, the clinical word for it, is glucose, right? When we're dehydrated, we do need sugar. But for the diabetic patients that may be having issues with their blood sugar, I often recommend diluting it so we're not giving your body such an intense amount in a short period of time. We're spreading that content out. 
You can also utilize the low sugar versions. They have reduced sugar. Those, of course, are not going to be extremely high in the other electrolytes, but it will be more friendly with your blood sugar. The best idea if you are diabetic is to dilute instead of choosing some of those zero or no sugar added options. For people who don't have those options at home and are not ready to get out of the house because they're having issues, I work with a physician who says take a two-finger pinch of sugar and a two-finger pinch of salt and put it in their water or juice of their choice. Yeah, that is the perfect homemade recipe. That's basically what those companies are selling you with some added flavorings. A homemade solution is absolutely safe. I often do it myself if I have the flu and I'm dehydrated. A little salt, a little sugar. You can also get sugar by lemon juice and things like that. Things that we naturally have in our fridge and our cupboards can be safe and absolutely beneficial to use. I get a lot of questions I feel like, have you ever been asked, Sarah, about adding pink Himalayan salt? Yes. Yeah, so pink Himalayan salt is a perfectly safe and awesome choice. However, not all of us have that in our cupboards. It's not super necessary. The added extra benefit of pink Himalayan salt is it has some extra what we call trace minerals, which are just other things that the body requires. So it's giving you a little bit more benefit, but it's not the end of the world if we're using our over-the-counter salt shaker and adding that. That is going to be the basis of what you want in the drink. But definitely if you have pink Himalayan salt and you have the choice, I would choose that. It's giving you a little extra nutrition that's going to help you get hydrated quicker. When I think of severe uncontrolled diarrhea, sometimes I think of the radiation inflammation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when you would often send those patients to me, one thing I look at was what form of treatment they're getting with radiation. When we're getting radiated at areas in the gut or pelvic region, if you think about that, that's where our intestinal tract is all tangled up. When we're radiating that area, we're basically just causing severe inflammation. Your gut and intestines kind of go into shock. We often call that radiation enteritis, which is a basic big word for radiation inflamed intestines. When your intestinal tract is inflamed, think of your intestines in your head and it's like swollen and things can't really be broken down and processed through. It's all irritated and aggravated. You're going to get severe diarrhea with that. And one big thing that patients don't often realize and sometimes gets forgot about is you can also become short-term lactose intolerant. And a lot of people don't realize that. They just actually think, oh, well, maybe dairy's causing the diarrhea or I should avoid dairy just because. Well, it actually is because your intestinal tract can't even process certain things in dairy products. So for a short period of time, patients are absolutely considered lactose intolerant. So that's something to be mindful of, especially if you're relying on protein shakes as a part of your baseline nutrition status. So that needs to be addressed. And then with that diarrhea from radiation, sometimes we really need to discuss with the providers when we need to recommend some maybe over-the-counter or medication into the patient's daily routine to resolve those types of issues. So really, Sarah and I would work hand-in-hand on the patient to help with diarrhea. We would assess, is it so severe we need to start on some medication? Together, we get to kind of help the patient navigate through treatment. Excellent. And it can happen after treatment is all the way over, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times patients forget that treatment lingers. Right. And radiation inflammation can be one of the longest lingering things that You'll be fine for two weeks after radiation is over and then all of a sudden have a problem. 
And you wouldn't think that it's radiation because, well, that treatment's over, so it's got to be something else. So, yeah, we have to be detectives in this, and it does. It takes a team. Yes. That's also because Sarah mentioned how long it can linger, why your follow-up appointments are important as well. And nutrition is involved in your follow-up appointments. Just because you're done getting treatment doesn't mean your nutrition is done being addressed or improved or benefiting your body. You're in a recovery mode, you're in a survivor mode, and nutrition is extremely important too. Absolutely. So once you are continuing your cancer journey into your survivorship time and then back into the world of wellness, nutrition will always play a prominent role in how to keep and maintain your wellness. Just like Sarah and I mentioned earlier regarding colorectal diets, prevention, you want all good healthy fiber. Treatment, we want to have certain fiber, right? And not the rough edge. And then once you get into that survivorship mode, working with your dietitian, you can eventually transition back to getting all those rough, healthy, fresh fruits and veggies, yummy, crunchy things back in your diet. That's why your follow-up appointments are very important and your diet can be different during different parts of this journey. Absolutely. Well said. So we've talked a lot about diarrhea. What about constipation? Does constipation ever happen with these patients that have colorectal cancer and these abnormal guts? Yes. So constipation is very prevalent and you sometimes may experience both constipation and diarrhea within a couple days apart from each other. So it's really good to know what to do for both issues that arise. Constipation and nutrition do have a role. With constipation, again, a lot of my patients think, okay, well, I need more bran, more fiber, more roughness to push that out. That is when you are in the preventative circle. In the fighting circle, it's actually still a little different because your gut is weaker, it's not as strong, and it can't do what it previously did to push food through and break it down and use that. With constipation, you actually want to almost choose a very similar low fiber but high soluble fiber type diet, but you also want to be very mindful with fluid. A lot of times constipation can lead to blockages and that can lead to being in the hospital as well. So constipation, we want to really push fluid and some kind of oddball tips and tricks that actually have worked quite well for numerous patients is if you notice just for the average person in the morning, we wake up, have our cup of coffee and go have our bowel movement, right? It's our little morning routine for ourselves. And actually that coffee stimulates you to have that bowel movement. Usually the warmth will kind of wake up your insides and make them start kind of working again and pushing and pulling things along. Also, some of the nutrients in the coffee helps to stimulate the movement down and out of us. That is normal if you have ever noticed that. A tip and a trick is actually a warm glass of apple juice in the morning. The warmthness will wake up your intestinal tract. And then the apple juice has some good soluble fiber in it that helps to kind of moisten up whatever's hardened up in there and push it out and along. If you were to eat a bunch of bran flakes and roughage, you would just pile on top of that stool that's inside of you and your constipation would get so worse, your stomach would be extremely distended and you would be very uncomfortable with your choice of what you just ate. Do you have to have a bowel movement every day? Nope, not at all. So with my patients, the biggest and most important question sometimes is, prior to diagnosis, what was a normal bowel routine for you? And getting a baseline. So kind of look back, was I an everyday person? Every other day? 
some patients every three days is a norm and that's okay as long as that was typical for you. We want to figure out your baseline. And then if you were an everyday person, though, but now you're only going once a week, that is a cause for concern. But if you previously went every three days and you're going every three to four now, that's absolutely normal, right? We're not having issues. So I wouldn't be concerned about that. What are your fluid needs then? You'd say replace your fluid when you have the loose stools with two and a half cups. If you're constipated, do you need more fluids or do you need to stop piling fluids on top of it? Good question. Fluids is for diarrhea and constipation is important. If you don't give yourself enough fluids, If you think about your intestines for a minute in your head, visualize them. If you're not giving fluid to your body, that intestinal tract can kind of dry up almost. So it's not pushing your stool through all the grooves to come out normally. If you're lacking fluid, your constipation will get way more aggravated. You want to push fluids for constipation, and warm fluids tend to be a little bit more beneficial, but cold is still absolutely fine. One sign that if you're constipated and we are trying to push some fluids and maybe you're taking a stool softener or Miralax, the sign that it's improving, there's two signs actually that the constipation is improving, is If you're having gas, gas is an awesome sign. We are happy, happy when you have gas. That means your belly's working and things are having some motion in there. Another sign is that your stool is going to come out pebbly or like little pebbles connected to each other. It's not going to be one long, elongated type thing. It can be, but most of the time it's going to be pebbly. And the pebbly is a very good indicator. That means you're on your road to having a normal bowel movement. So when you see pebbles, you keep pushing your fluid and you keep using those good soluble fibers and even a stool softener to go in there and break up that hard, hard rock of a bowel movement in your intestinal tract. And that should be a really good victory for you. Excellent. Well done. We really want to make this not for practitioners, right. but for people who have never had to think about their innards at all. Yeah. yeah. The reason we hear grumbling in our belly is because our gut is alive. It has bacteria that's in there and helps our gut move. Our gut is mobile. It pulls, it moves a bolus is what it's called of food to absorb the nutrition and to take out what is needed, put the waste in this tract and make a pile of poop. Yep. It's alive. So if it gets dried out, it doesn't work well. If it is way too moist and things are rushing out, you're not absorbing anything. So you need more fluid. Yep. Fluid is very important for both, and it's going to be slightly higher than normal. So if you're like, well, I I drink eight glasses of water a day right now. Why is that not enough? Because that's your baseline. That's your normal. And right now, this isn't normal to have all this severe constipation and diarrhea. Take whatever you're doing and add half of that to it. So if you're drinking eight glasses of water a day... Half of that is four, so I'm going to add four to that and have a goal of 12, if that kind of makes sense. We've talked before about the goal is to make your urine fairly clear. Absolutely. When you're having constipation and diarrhea, you really need to be mindful about not just clear urine, but also rehydrating the inside of that gut. So... What do people mean when they tell me they have a lot of mucus or oil in their stool? It's not normal. It might be all clear or all white. What are they talking about? 
when they mention any type of oil, mucus, discoloration, that's not a normal stool and you absolutely 110% should mention that to your healthcare provider. You should notice your stool. Most of us do. We look back when we flush the toilet. If you're undergoing treatment or have just been diagnosed, pay attention to your stool. It tells us the story of your gastro or your belly and how your intestines are working. It's telling me what it's lacking and what it's doing too much of. If you have oil or if the water looks oily, that actually is meaning that you're not absorbing fat. So if you think of fat, like think of olive oil. It's a liquid fat. It's oily. Fat is oily, right? And greasy. You literally are not absorbing it, so it has to go somewhere, so it's going out with your stool. That's why it looks oily and greasy. Sometimes people are like, yeah, it looks like, you know, olive oil droplets in the water or something. That's fat malabsorption. If it's discolored, Discoloration can be an indicator of a couple things, so that's why looking at all of it and assessing it is needed. Some yellow, orange colors that aren't supposed to be there can be an indicator of malabsorbing food or also an indicator of your gallbladder and liver and the digestive juices that are kind of being excreted and secreted out. So discoloration is something to be mindful of. Other things is if it's floating, right? Most of us, a nice, well-formed bowel movement. It goes and it should go in the water and hit the bottom of the toilet bowl, right? That's a typical normal one, right? A nice, solid-looking one. Well, if it's more so floating, that actually is another sign of the fat being malabsorbed. If you think of, like, oil and water, like how there's that separation from the water and it's floating, that's because there's fat in your stool, so it's floating on top of the stool. Also, if it's like really sticky and to the side of the bowl, that's another sign of some digestive issues. All these can be indicators of how your gut and your digestive tract or your intestines are working. So pay attention to your poop. It tells us a lot. Poop doesn't smell good. Yeah. Are there different smells that we should be aware of? A hundred percent accurate, yes. So the smell of your poop even is a big indicator. And it's so funny when I ask my patients this, if I ask a man and his wife is present, and I'll say, okay, so your bowel movements, do they have an abnormally foul odor to them? It's always the wife that goes, oh my goodness, yes. That is the worst smell I've ever had in my home before. We have to shut the door and he uses a separate bathroom. It can be more foul than normal. It can be what I call abnormally foul odor. So yes, if it's more pungent and potent and you really just have to close the door and you know something's not right coming out of you, that's an indicator too that we need to be aware of. There are many people that may not be aware of how vital your role can be. People are not used to talking about their poop. We've all had people who have no problems talking about it. Oftentimes, it is tough to get information out of people who are not used to talking about their poop. Tell me a little bit more about your role and what you do. Poop can be a very sensitive topic. I have some patients that may be extremely open about it and even ask for me to look at pictures on their phone of it. But then I get some patients where they look at me like, you know, deer in the headlights, kind of, why would you bring this up? My wife is next to me, or my husband is next to me, and my child's in the room with us. Why do you even need to know that? That's very personal. I try and just kind of sit down with the patient and let them know, I'm going to go over some questions These questions will help me address your appetite, your weight, and then also I'm going to ask about your bowel movements. And the reason I do that is because they tell me a lot about if you're digesting your food. So I reiterate to them, if you're really putting in the hard work of making sure you're eating well, but you're not digesting it, 
They're doing all this hard work for nothing ultimately, and it's going unnoticed unless we address your bowel habits. Sometimes when patients I can tell maybe are a little bit uneasy, I'll just let them know, listen, I'm going to ask a few questions. Now we're going to go into telling me a little bit more about your bowel movements. This is going to tell me how well you're absorbing and digesting food and if your body's ultimately functioning properly. I tell them the reason why I'm going to ask and sometimes it'll click, oh, well, yeah, she does need to know if I'm actually absorbing my food. I didn't know those two things connected, but then they feel more comfortable talking. If a patient just kind of shuts me down and is like, oh, they're fine. There's nothing wrong. It's fine. Yep, I'm going regular. Yep, it's fine. Well, I still subtly will kind of just double check and say, okay, well, how about this color noticeable? Or kind of pinpoint certain things that are red flags for me with stool and near poop. Then maybe the patient will be like, well, yeah, it's orange and yellow and, you know, it's fine. Well, has that always been orange and yellow? No, it's just started the past two weeks. So by knowing what to ask, I can assess for certain specific issues that could be present and maybe the patient just doesn't want to talk about or doesn't think it's important. We don't know everything if you're not working in the health profession. So my job is to know everything about your poop and to know what the story it's telling me ultimately. It is a good conversation to have. You should bring it up to your healthcare provider, even if they don't bring it up to you. Let them know if something seems off to you. And next time you go to the bathroom, make sure you take a look and just kind of think to yourself, is this what my normal is? Really kind of figure out what your normal is and monitor that. You don't have to track it in a book and take it to every doctor appointment. Now, some caregivers love to track it and love to ask their spouse, okay, did you just go? Let me go write it down. But just mentally be aware of how often you're going and what it looks like. That can tell us a lot about your body and if we need to intervene at any point. Excellent. Very good. People who have been well before have a way of managing their bowel movements They're used to seeing commercials and going and finding what they need at the local grocery store or pharmacy. Should people be managing their changes in their bowel movements with over-the-counter medications, especially before consulting a physician? A lot of my patients come to my office that may already be taking or ask if they should be taking over-the-counter fiber supplements such as maybe ones you've heard of such as Metamucil or Benefiber. If you've ever taken it yourself, most often you buy it in a powder form. They have gummy forms now too. But usually it's unflavored. You mix it in even with your morning coffee or juice or water. The thought behind that is it's a certain type of fiber. Again, remember, there's your insoluble and soluble. Insoluble is something you can't break down like corn, right? None of us break that down. But soluble fiber is stuff that kind of forms and creates a good, nice consistency. That's what those fiber supplements are. So it helps keep you regular, it keeps things well-formed, not too hard, not too loose. A nice, consistent bowel movement is what those things can provide. Now, can you be taking it if you have constipation or diarrhea? Absolutely. Will it solve it? Absolutely not, but it will help it. So you can't just rely on a quick over-the-counter fix. You have to take a look at what your fluids, your food, and sometimes you need over-the-counter medications along with it. That, as a dietitian, is a part of my job to discuss the role of nutrition and also taking sometimes over-the-counter things such as Miralax and stool softeners and assisting my patients of when is the best time for them to take it based on how often they're having those bowel movements. 
A lot of times patients get confused with when they're constipated, do I take a stool softener or do I take Miralax? How much do I take? The bottle says don't take more than four days, but I need to be taking it for two weeks. Isn't that dangerous? These are all things that we can discuss in my appointment. For example, Miralax, I like to describe it, is something where it's pulling water out of the cells of your digestive tract and pouring things out and helping to push. So it's grabbing water and pushing that hardened, constipated stool out of you. So sometimes people take Miralax and know, oh gosh, I'm going to be in the bathroom in about 30 minutes and you know it's going to clean me out. With Miralax, you also need to be careful to not overdo it because then my constipated patients will flip-flop to diarrhea and you don't want to teeter-totter. Often I recommend my patients that are a little bit more constipated, fluid and nutrition just aren't cutting it, well, having Miralax, but starting at a half a dose and seeing if that helps. If not, the next day you increase it. So taking it slow. I would also recommend sometimes for during treatment, a normal thing to have daily can also be a stool softener for those that are more prone to constipation throughout treatment. A stool softener is not something that's going to be taken and then cause an immediate release of poop coming out of you. Basically, it's much more gentle It goes in and kind of loosens things up and takes it nice and slow and it kind of pushes things along, whereas the other forms really can cause a rushed effect out of you. So a stool softener is a great daily tool. It's a little bit more powerful, I think, than a Metamucil if you're on the more constipated side. And that can be taken at any time during the day, and it can be taken every day safely as well. When we talk about over-the-counter medications, I like to point out to the patients that if it says lax or S at the end, those are the stimulants. Those are what will push the poop out faster, where the softener will not have the S. So there's Senna and there's Senna S. The common stool softener we think of is Colace, but we also like other ones on the market. Anything that has been known to help you in the past, we say, yep, go ahead and try what normally helps. If it's not helping, come back to us and we'll talk about it. Typically, Sarah, you often send me these patients still because you help them figure out when they need that over-the-counter adjustment but nutrition can still be a vital role too. We don't want to rely on one more than the other. Sarah and I get to work together on these types of patients. They're so interrelated. It would be very beneficial to all patients with cancer to marry their dietitian and their provider together. I like to send patients to you. Although you are my favorite dietitian in all of the world, I would like everybody to have a Gina in their side pocket. I would like everybody to understand the importance of nutrition along with cancer. One of the Cancer Perspective episodes has been on who do I call? When somebody's struggling with their poop, do they call you? You can. (laughs) We always say it depends, right? It depends on, you know, Nutrition is always key to your health and wellness, just with changes in there. Who's going to have more time to dedicate for a problem that's going on? Or is it something that we need to get you in and get you hydrated? So who do they call? Well, you can call me or the provider's team. The thing about working at a facility where you have different health professionals functioning together allows you to either call your dietitian regarding your poop or call your provider's team because we communicate. If you were to call me, I have a certain set of questions I may run through. Oh, you're calling me with diarrhea. Okay, how often, how many times have you gone to the bathroom in the last 24 hours? And assess it 
And then I also take that information and will relay it to the provider or the provider's nurse So the provider is aware of it. And if it needs to have a medical intervention done, then they step in. If not, I will assist with nutrition, diet changes, maybe some over-the-counter recommendations, or the provider may need to have you come in and assess for dehydration or something like that. Constantly, Sarah and I would be, you know, messaging back and forth and she would maybe be like, oh, no, that's maybe to be expected in the next 24 hours. Anything after that, then have them call me. Or Sarah would be like, hey, Gina, I'm going to have the nurse call and have them bring them in. We need to get them set up with hydration. It is ideal if we work as a team. Not every facility has these options, though. So you got to think about what's best with your team. Ask your team questions. There is no question that is a stupid question, whether it's about poop or nutrition or asking who do I call. And clarify with them. So if I'm talking about poop with my patient, you should ask, So do you want me to call you, Gina, if I have some diarrhea in the next week? Should I call you? Clarify that. Advocate for yourself. But yes, you want to clarify with the team that they are the designated one or part or an option to call. When we talk about colorectal cancer and colorectal awareness, we know that many of our patients will end up having surgery. Surgery makes their poop so different depending on where that surgery is located and how fast things need to transit. There are people who have a normal bowel movement before surgery, and then after surgery, their bowel movement's normal is going to be forever changed. Yeah, and Sarah mentioned the word forever. Depending on the type of surgeries, going to kind of also give you an idea of what to expect your poop should be like after surgery. Definitely have that discussion with your surgeon. You need to be aware of what you should be looking for when you go and have a bowel movement. When people do have surgery, it can be a problem where their gut completely stops working. Yeah, we see that a lot. I tell my patients your gut basically is called a sleepy gut. It's kind of just hibernating and we need to re-wake it up. We need to help make it want to push and pull and move things along. Sometimes that can be medication. So sometimes that's your area, Sarah. So the sign of a gut not working is that not only are you not pooping, but you're also not passing gas. Yeah. And that's why your healthcare team is going to get really super excited if they hear you're starting to pass gas again. That's probably our biggest excitement as a dietitian after a colorectal surgery is the moment my patient says, yep, I just passed gas. And then their first bowel movement, oh my gosh, we high five and hug. It's such a good sign. You will be annoyed with that question, but trust us, it tells us that things are working and we get so happy for you. Yeah, so some people do have to have a colostomy and have their bowel movements into a bag. Everything that we've talked about today still matters, whether you are using your usual tract or if you've had a surgically altered tract. Yes, Sometimes the surgeon will go in and create an opening and you'll have a bag attached to it. Sometimes you may hear cancer survivors say, oh yeah, I have a bag or I had a bag for six months or maybe for the rest of their lives. We basically are rerouting where your poop's going due to them maybe taking out a tumor or something like that. The biggest thing I learned, especially as an intern, is that we actually don't call them bowel movements. We call them outputs. So for a patient that has a bag, you will ask them, how's your outputs look like? What do those look like? For someone that has a bag, you should not expect to see a well-shaped, formed little poop come out, 
right? It's different. It will be looser and it will be more liquidy. However, there's a fine line between liquidy and watery. You still want some poop substance to come out. However, we don't want it to be very watery, diluted, or also rush out where sometimes you can have a explosion is what we call them. Or how many times you empty your bag is a question. Yes, empty your bag, outputs. These are all terms that you'll become more familiar with if that is something your doctor is recommending. After you get a bag placed, a lot of times you leave the hospital with a nice little packet of papers and one of those papers will say low fiber diet. Unfortunately, a lot of patients, that's all the education they get on what they should be eating. And that's overwhelming. If I just had someone cut a hole and alter where my poop goes, but not tell me what I should and shouldn't be eating and how long will this diet last, that's so overwhelming. A lot of times they don't give great follow-up. You have to advocate for yourself or seek out your providers and a dietitian to help you with this process. After surgery, obviously, you just had, you know, things cut and rerouted and everything's again inflamed, irritated. So we need to be gentle. We don't want to give it a bunch of raw fruits and vegetables and corn and things that are really tough and hard for us to digest. You really want more of that soft diet, that soluble fiber that we talked about, your white rice instead of your brown rice, your cooked vegetables, your pureed or canned fruits are going to be options you want to incorporate. However, just because you got a colostomy bag does not mean you never get to enjoy those things again. Very important point. Yeah, so it's called a transition. For a couple weeks, you have to stick it out, eat a little softer, and it can be more of a bummer for my patients in the summertime when all those fresh things come out. Give it a couple weeks, and then the rule of thumb is you add something new in and assess it for 24 to 48 hours. Just like you would a young child with a brand new gut starting new food. That's exactly right. Yeah, think of it like how you added peanut butter to your kid's diet, right? You want to monitor it, see how they tolerated it. If you are transitioning and you decide, okay, I'm going to try fresh green beans tonight and see how that goes. Well, just be mindful, chew it up, do a little extra work so your gut doesn't have to. Now, you still will see part of the food undigested in your bag. Your body is rerouted. It can't do everything it used to, but you should not see it all come out undigested. But you will notice undigested food pieces, little particles. That's normal. Don't freak out. If you eat your corn fast, you're going to see corn kernels. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Corn is always the best example. You will see food in your bag, but if you see an abundance and it's rushing out, That's worrisome. You want to back off, go back to your soft diet, try something new in a couple days. But typically introducing one thing at a time and eventually I have some patients that jump right back to their standard diet and are having almonds and cashews and trail mix and things like that. It's just a process, but it doesn't mean that those foods are out of the question for you. Forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's temporary. Yep. And you learn to live with your new normal. Absolutely. And new normal doesn't have to be permanent for some people. And other people, yeah, your new normal is a constant roll with the dice just because that's the way the cancer journey goes. Absolutely. And my job is to help your new normal be the best tasting new normal for you. Right. And the healthiest eventually. So yes. what if, you know, People who have been diagnosed with cancers come to us with not the healthiest of choices in the beginning. They're coming off of things that may not have been what you would have optimally said as a dietitian to say, okay, wow, you're getting an awful lot of caffeine in your diet. 
How do we slow that down? And what does caffeine do to our nutrition, our gut motility? Why would we say there should be a limit on what we drink in a day as far as caffeine goes? So I like to say I'm a realist. A lot of my patients come to me and they're like, well, I don't know what to do. The doctor just said no caffeine whatsoever. And my patient drinks a pot and a half of coffee a day and has a caffeinated soda at night. If they were to come off that right away, that would be horrible. You would feel horrible. They'd be cranky. Their significant others would not be happy with me. You would get headaches, the standard withdrawal. So I like to be mindful of that. I like to be a realist and work with the patient on reducing. I'm a big fan of taking it slow to make it a long-lasting behavior change. Let's reduce the amount. Can we obviously give you a little caffeine for your morning pick-me-up? I think everybody deserves that one cup of coffee in the morning. Absolutely. Let's not limit joy, but let's not drink a pot. Let's maybe switch to decaf if you like the taste of it or enjoy it. Or some people really just need to transition to a sparkling carbonated water or something for that extra fizz and pop. So it's figuring out little tweaks and habits to make things still enjoyable and reduce the caffeine as much as possible. Some people, it's not always eliminated, and some patients can absolutely do it. So we work together to make the best choice for you. On top of that, Gina, caffeine can be very dehydrating. That's ultimately the reason why your providers are telling you to try and avoid or no more caffeine. Because caffeine basically takes all the water that you've worked so hard to drink and obtain through foods and things to hydrate yourself. It takes it and it just rushes it out of your system and it's not allowing your body to absorb it and utilize it. So it will dehydrate you quicker. That's why you may notice if you're drinking coffee or going pee or in the bathroom very frequently, it runs right through you. Can't forget about those diet sodas people are choosing. That's very popular now, too. Even if it's decaffeinated, there's a factor involved that also can tend to dehydrate. There's sugar substitutes and sugar alcohols that are used in there that will make you have to use the restroom more often, too. So you have to be mindful of your beverage of choice. When we talk about cancer, we mention smoking cessation all the time. But there are some people with nicotine habits that use their nicotine to help them poop. Yep. That is another thing they don't realize. When a lot of patients get the news they're diagnosed, they obviously are encouraged to stop smoking or want to and are very dedicated to and then end up coming to me and are like, I haven't pooped in like a week. What's going on? What's happening to my body? It's because the nicotine involved, it's a stimulant, just like taking a laxative or something. It's pushing and pulling and causing that gut function and movement to give you that bowel habit. Your body gets in the habit of having that nicotine, so when you take it away, it's not gonna push and pull things along at that typical time. So it gets confused and it leads to constipation. Sometimes we need to address that by encouraging some nutrition alterations or also using over-the-counter products. You are so knowledgeable about your poop. I love talking about poop. <laughs> a lot of patients start out going, okay, TMI, and I like to let them know, listen, I talk about it all day, every day. It's one of the most fascinating subjects. It was my favorite thing I learned about as a college student. For some reason, it tells us the story of the body, and it can often be something we just don't pay enough attention to. Excellent, Gina. You have been wonderful. Dietitians are an invaluable part of the cancer team. It is important to have a dietitian to help be a detective in helping to improve the overall gut health, make you feel better, maintain your wellness as optimally as possible in order for you to continue your journey in the cancer battle. 
Nutrition is an important part of this process, and sometimes we often forget that. We eat all day, every day. It's an important part of life. We need to eat to survive. Our food and drinks that we're choosing can help alleviate some symptoms that you're having. And the reason I love this job is because nutrition gives the patient and the family some control over a very uncontrollable disease. You are able to choose food to help nourish and give your body the energy for this fight. You are able to choose how much you're drinking in a day to help stay hydrated and have good bowel movements. You can choose these things for your life. And being a part of that journey for patients is the most wonderful job for me to have. You're fascinating. It's very rewarding. And the patients really benefit from a good dietitian. So thank you for being there for them. Thank you again for joining us, Gina, and for all of you who have come along on this journey. I want to tell you all to take care and continue to spread kindness. 